This is the Frog for Life podcast. I'm your host, Rob Berline. I don't think that I have, I would have been able to do the work that I did in the Pentagon without my time at TCU. I learned so much about uh, politics and history and philosophy, which a lot of people say, well, what does that give you? It actually helps you in how you approach solving problems. That is the voice of Todd Weiler, who is a former Assistant Secretary of Defense for the United States, as well as an accomplished author and entrepreneur. Todd will talk about his service in all three areas and how TCU contributed to his professional success. And we are thrilled to be joined today by a very special guest, Todd Weiler, former Assistant Secretary of Defense of the government. He is an author. He has a new book out, which we will talk about in a little bit, Untamed Equality. And of course, he is a TCU grad, which is why he is joining us today. So thank you so much for joining us today, Todd. Yeah, it's great to be here. Well, before we get, get started into all the great things you've done since uh graduating from TCU, let's get started as to why you chose TCU in the first place. So what was it, you know, those a few years ago that led you to come to TCU? Well, I'll try not to upset uh, my fellow Texans that go to other schools, but um, (laughs) originally when I was getting ready to go to college, um, it had just sort of been the practice of my family and our friends that they, everyone went to tech. Uh, I grew up in Midland, so that was the logical choice. That way you could come home and get your clothes done on the weekend. Uh, but then I, I uh, received a scholarship at the last moment uh, that would allow me to go to a more expensive school. Uh, so I uh, went with uh, my best friend at the time. He was going to TCU to look at the school. He had already chosen it. And so uh, his parents and I and, uh, and he all went there and it was, I believe it was like a month before school started. And um, so there was not much chance of me getting through the process, but as it came around, um, I I toured the school, loved it. And um, they actually allowed me to enter. So (laughs) that was, that was the story. I really uh, was excited about the political science department and I liked the campus and the ROTC program. So it worked out great. And I know you were a part of the ROTC program um, upon coming here. What were some of the um, other activities you were able to to get involved in as a student? So I would say ROTC ate up about 90% of the <laughs> time. But uh, as as with so many students uh, back then, we uh, I had part-time work. So I worked in the evenings. Uh, and I also participated in a lot of the political science uh, after-school programs. Mm-hmm. And with wanting to be in ROTC, did you have it from an early age that you wanted to be involved in some sort of military um, experience throughout your life? Or what kind of led uh, to you joining that and then, and then later into your military service? Yeah, it's sort of, uh, I, I mean, I was raised uh, by uh, uh, parents that were very um, strong on service, um, giving back to the community. My mother particularly was was uh, committed on giving back to the community. So it was sort of in my mind that that was something that I wanted to do. Um, And it was really more of a a decision-making process of which service I would go to. (laughs) And uh, 
So the Army uh, ROTC department said, hey, we'll give you uh, another scholarship uh, to help pay for more of your school. <laughs> and uh, so that made it an easy decision. <laughs> and you were, said you're also uh, heavily involved in political science events. And um, what really stuck out to you about the political science side of things? And is there kind of one aspect that you gravitated towards? Yeah, I, it's really interesting. This is true, I think, of a lot of people when they get to college. You find out things that you really liked. It. Things that you thought you might like, you don't end up liking. And things that you know otherwise you would have dismissed, you find out they're really cool and you want to study more of them. So that's sort of what happened in the political science side. I went to school thinking I was going to be a lawyer and quickly decided that wasn't a good path to go. Um, and then I got into history and, and then into the uh, public, public administration side of po political science and really enjoyed that. Um, and so I would just participate. There were a lot of events around town with the Young Democrats and uh, you know, Fort Worth in general is sort of a, a big political city anyway. So there's a lot of activity to do, a lot of things to do. Yeah, there is a, there is something for everybody to do in Fort Worth. That is for sure. You got um, it. <laughs> so you graduate TCU, and then you join the army. It's a bit of a kind of a different story. You see, some people join before they go to college. You joined after you go to college. What led to that decision? So I went through ROTC, and as a scholarship student, uh, you are required to serve for a period of time once you graduate. Uh, so I was commissioned, uh, and at the time that I graduated, which was in 87, uh, the military was going through a downsizing. So everyone was commissioned in the reserve components, uh, which means not full-time service, which was a problem for many of us because we had guys that had criminal justice degrees and guys with political science degrees and history degrees. And we were like, uh, what are we gonna do now? We were gonna be full-time army officers. So, um, so I went to uh, my training course, which was for me, it was helicopter training. Uh, and then uh, change from being an officer, a, a lieutenant, to being a warrant officer, and that allowed me to go on active duty. So kind of a complex story, but basically um, it was a lot of communicating with uh, congressmen and senators to get to that point, uh, but uh, I finally got to go on active duty. And what made you choose the aviation side of things? Uh, interesting, uh, in ROTC, and I'm sure that anybody that's been to TCU knows this, has seen this, um, like every Thursday or one day a week, you'll see uh, all the kids out in uniform marching around that are in the ROTC units. Well, on the weekends, uh, once or twice a year, we would do what was called a field training exercise in FTX, where we would go out and practice military maneuvers. Uh, well, there was a National Guard helicopter unit in the local area that took us up to one of these events up north of Fort Worth, I forget the exact place, um, where we did this exercise. And getting in the helicopter was really cool, flying around at treetop level. When that weekend was over, I, I decided that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly, it certainly worked out for you. So then you were, you were commissioned to be an active um, helicopter, active duty officer um in the military in the army um talk about a little bit um 
what you're allowed to. Um, a little bit about your that combat experience you had as a as a helicopter uh, yeah. pilot. Yeah. So um, so I left TCU, graduated, went to my flight training, which was 14 months to be trained in uh, helicopters. And during that period, that's when you decide or you get tracked, as they say, into which aircraft. So for me, it was the attack helicopter, the Cobra. Um, and then once I went on active duty, uh, my first assignment was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky with 101st. And uh, I was there, uh, I guess, about a year before uh, we deployed to uh, Saudi Arabia for Desert Shield, mm -hmm. and then ultimately to Iraq as part of Desert Storm. Mm -hmm. um, so it was interesting when I first got to Fort Campbell, everyone was pretty upset because we didn't get called into the operation in Panama. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly since it was an air assault kind of mission. Uh, so everybody was excited to get to go to uh, the Middle East. And I put that in quotes because <laughs> excitement is, uh, is relative. Um, but we all figured if, if we were going to end up going, if the, if the American military was going to go, we wanted to be the first one. So uh, that's what happened. We went there. Uh, many, many months spent um, kind of wondering what was going on over the border in Iraq. We were basically sent in in the beginning to defend uh, the Saudi territory from, from Saddam Hussein uh, invading Saudi Arabia. And then ultimately uh, in moving up into Iraq and toward Baghdad. So it was very intense. Uh, I would say it was probably... Uh, 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 an experience I would never want to have again, but I wouldn't <laughs> trade for anything. Uh, I, I learned so much about people, about obviously flying, flying at three feet off the ground, <laughs> um, which is what you do to keep from getting shot. Um, and it was it was very intense, but you learn a lot. And, uh, and I made lifelong friends. And uh, it was, like I said, not anything I would want to do again, but something that I absolutely cherish. Sounds like uh, the classic saying, be careful what you wish for. That's exactly, like, you got it. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> so you were in the Army just four years um, as, a, as a combat officer, and then you, at the age of 28, are appointed to Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army. How does, I mean, that's quite a big jump. <laughs> <laughs> yes, funny stories about that, too. So um, when I came back, uh, from the Gulf War, uh, basically the Cobra's helicopters that I was flying were from the Vietnam era. Uh, so they were being transitioned out and they were bringing on the new aircraft, the Apache. And uh, basically we were told you could either uh, transition over to the Apache and commit to six more years or uh, basically get out. And so I figured at that point, Attack helicopter pilot, did my war, check mark. <laughs> it's sort of anticlimactical after that. There's not much, you know, <laughs> what else can you do? So I decided to get out and head towards my first love politics. I drove from Fort Campbell to Little Rock, Arkansas, met with uh, the Clintons uh, right as about the time that he was going to be announcing for the president. And uh, then shortly thereafter, I began traveling with uh, Mrs. Clinton uh, on the 1992 campaign. And when 
uh, we won. I was with them in Little Rock. And uh, shortly thereafter, I went back home, not thinking too much after the campaign was over with. And I get this phone call from a friend of mine that says, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm sitting in Midland. Uh, <laughs> I'm sitting in my apartment. And she says, get your butt up to Washington, D.C. We have a country to run. I came to Washington, D.C. and uh, uh, on Inauguration Day 93 was appointed as the uh, White House liaison uh, to the Department of Defense, which was basically uh, the role was to uh, move out the Bush people, move in the Clinton people, appoint, appoint the Clinton people to the positions. And uh, then I moved from there to be the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army. Very interestingly, I'm walking down the hallway of the Pentagon, as we affectionately call it, the five-sided funny farm. Uh, <laughs> I'm walking down the hallway in one of the first weeks that I'm there, and I hear somebody yell, Eagle Attack, which is the call sign for the 101st uh, Airborne Unit that I was in. And I turn around, and it was the colonel that commanded my unit in the Gulf War. And he said, he goes, Weiler what are you doing here? I'm like, well, that's an interesting story. Uh, so I'm telling the story. And then a couple of weeks later, I'm walking down the hall and I hear, hey, sir. And ah, sweet revenge. <laughs> so you became his boss. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so a couple things uh, stick out to me in that story. First, if you, the first on the campaign, what was your role with the Clinton campaign? Uh, so I was an advance man for Hillary Clinton. Okay. And uh, then uh, during the convention in 92 and then during election night, uh, I was the, like the personal staff person for uh, Chelsea. Okay. The care of Chelsea during those times. So. Okay. Yeah. And then after the election, while you're sitting in Midland, what was your career options you, you were thinking of that time? What was your, your plans? So I was thinking, okay, I'm going to run for Congress. <laughs> yeah. Then dose of reality comes about um, <laughs> and realize that that wasn't exactly going to happen at uh, 27 years old. Um, so then I thought, well, I, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I guess I could do like most helicopter pilots and look for a helicopter flying job, or I could go into the oil field. So I had just started doing uh, work in, in the oil field with an oil company out there and mm -hmm. trying to figure out what my next steps would be. <laughs> then you had to say, um, I have a good reason I'm giving you my two week notice. It's greener on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> so after you were the uh, deputy, C, deputy assistant secretary of the army, um, you left that and worked in the business world for a little while and found one Hemisphere Ventures. Um, so as an entrepreneur, what was that organization designed for? So basically doing government contracting, I, I left the Pentagon towards the end of the Clinton years. And I thought, well, this would be a great time to jump out and get my feet wet in the business world and then come back in under Gore. But uh, interestingly enough, and I guess, you know, I, I tell people all the time in the worst tragedies, there's always a silver lining. Sometimes you just don't see it. Um, Tim, Tim Maud, who was killed in 9-11, along with so many others, uh, he was a, a three-star general. He was the senior most uh, person killed in the Pentagon. It was a very good friend of mine. And it just so happened that the issues that they were discussing when on 9-11 
were the issues that I used to run when I was in the Pentagon. So it was, uh, you know, I guess a, a blessing in disguise that, that Gore didn't win and I wasn't in the Pentagon. Um, but I decided to go into the uh, uh, civilian world and I started doing just um, consulting work. And uh, a friend of mine from the National Guard called and said, you know, we really could use your help on some issues. So before I knew it, I was a government contractor running a company, doing IT services, doing uh, data analytics and things like that. We were really trying in the early days looking at uh, suicide prevention programs and you know, what, what was causing people to, uh, to commit suicide. We, we had a you know, huge spike in suicides in, in the 2000s uh, among service members. And so we were trying to figure out what are, what were the conditions that were creating that? And are there markers that we could find? Are there things that people do or whatever uh, that, that could give us a signal that they might be uh, predisposed uh, uh, for, for committing suicide? So I was involved in a lot of that early on and really enjoyed it. Um, the, the name of the company really came from uh, a, a political desire, at, which remains today, that we focus more on our hemisphere here. We spend so much time uh, with our eyes toward Europe, or now we're getting more focused on uh, the Far East. We, we rarely focus any real attention to our own hemisphere. And so that was really the point that I was trying to get to with creation of this company was, was to create partnerships with our South and Central American partners, as well as with Canada, uh, to, to better our own world here. Mm -hmm. And so you said you were working with, you're doing IT support. You were also basically being kind of a mental health for um, servicemen um, and, their, and their state of mind. I, how, I mean, that just sounds like very wide um, directions in terms of what you're doing a little bit. It's kind of like a buffet, a little bit of, a little bit of everything sounds like. Yeah, it is in many ways. I mean, um, as, a, as a small business owner, one thing that you, you kind of find out very quickly is that you have to be nimble. You know, like I said, I started the company thinking I wanted to do programs where we're bringing everybody in the hemisphere together and and focused on a bigger mission. Well, that doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> <laughs> and if it doesn't pay the bills, guess what? You do whatever you need to do to pay the bills. So that's that's first priority is paying the bills, keeping the lights on. So um, I basically got into IT services just because I sort of dabbled in it a little bit in my closing days at the Pentagon. I was on the Y2K task force and, and some of those other things. and. Um, so it was an area that I knew how to sell. If you, I didn't know how to do it, but how to sell it. And, um, and then I was always fascinated about how IT and data uh, really intersects with us as humans and, and how you can do things like um, through data research, find, find markers like for suicide prevention or find markers of people that might be insider threats and so forth. So that's, that's where those intersections kind of came about. And, and I learned a long time ago from my mother. My mother used to say, you're, you're jack of all trades and a pretty damn good windmill worker, <laughs> um, which basically means you're a mile wide and an inch deep, and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and 
so thin. And so people are thinking at this point, oh, that's not seen transition into the into the private sector. Well, you had another foray into government work towards the end of Obama administration. You were the oh. assistant secretary of defense yeah. of the whole country for manpower and reserve affairs. So I guess tell us a little bit about that role. And I guess that this is, I'm assuming somebody knew you and called you up. <laughs> no, actually, it was uh, it was the other way around. I, so I, as you now know, I was very close to Hillary, um, and so I was, you know, I was doing my business in the 2000s. Uh, had had a successful business during that period and sold it, uh, and was starting another one. And Hillary decided to run for president in 08. Uh, I was 100% behind her and did a lot of work with her, raised money for her and so forth. And uh, obviously that didn't work out. And uh, so I went back to continuing building a new business. And uh, it's sort of the thing of, I just didn't focus on going back in uh, because my person didn't win and um, I was building a business. So it was later in the second term of the Obama administration that I reconnected with some of my old friends from the Pentagon, including a, a lady by the name of Debbie, Debbie James, who uh, had been in the assistant secretary role back during Clinton and was now the secretary of the Air Force. So I gave her a call and she says, oh my goodness, we got to get you back in the building, blah, blah, blah. And before I knew it, I was back in the building under the guise of one more time Hillary was going to definitely win this time in 16, I would already be in the building that way. So it would be very easy for me to stay. Well, once again, my I'm lucky on the business side. I haven't been so wonderfully. Now I've been very lucky on the political side too, I guess. But, uh, um, you know, things didn't work out in 16. So guess what? I started another business. <laughs> This is the thing a lot of people don't realize um, that when you go into government, you're supposed to divest yourself from all business activity. So uh, the business that I had been running, I literally shuttered and got rid of. Uh, the one before that, I, I it was big enough that I could sell it. Uh, so once uh, the, the 16 campaign was over, I was out of the Pentagon in January of, of 2017. Uh, saying goodbye as the assistant secretary and then start another business. But in my role as the assistant secretary, basically I was in charge of all the uh, military personnel and civilian personnel programs for the department, uh, family programs, things like that. So, And, and you mentioned um, the Clinton campaign in 08. So fun fact there, relating it back to TCU in 2008, Chelsea Clinton actually made a campaign stop in what was then the main, now it's, you know, Shardower Hall. Uh, I don't know the last time you were on campus, but yes, Chelsea Clinton actually did a campaign stop here and, and it was uh, January of 2008. I'll be, wow. Yeah. yeah, I well, I did a lot of uh, traveling around with her and with a friend of mine who's an actor named Sean Astin. Um, Lord Rudy. Of the Rings, Goody, yes, Goonies, Rudy, yeah. <laughs> uh, he and I met in the 92 campaign. Really? Uh, yeah, and we're like best friends and uh, I'm the godfather of his daughters. So. Wow. Yeah. So there I think is... There's I mean, another we, show. We hear that you're the assistant secretary of defense. We think that's the headline really is you're the godfather to Rudy's children. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so there we go. And so, another, I, had, I I was traveling around with him and uh, and Chelsea, and and I imagine we did an event down in San Antonio together. So I imagine it was about the same time she was up in in Fort Worth for TCU. But um, too bad I didn't make that event. I know you should have been put on the right detail. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And so if people are wondering what other skill sets you have, we're going to tap into another one that, that is your, your current project is that you're also an author. Um, and the book is called Untamed Equality. So I guess what was the, um, the idea behind the book and, and what was that process like? Yeah, so I had been wanting to write a book since I came back from the Gulf War. And I literally, I had kept every single letter I wrote during the war that I sent back, I told my family, hold on to the letters. I kept every letter that anybody sent me. Uh, I kept the journal and I thought, I'm gonna write this book. Yeah, right. That, that's the hardest thing <laughs> in the world to do. So I had spits and starts for 20 years, could never get beyond a, you know, a couple of chapters. Um, and so then it, it just sort of fizzled out. Um, and then over the past couple of years, uh, really kind of picked it back up and, and got connected with a, uh, a lady that helps, you know, writers get through the block and does editing and so forth and, and finally pushed it through. Uh, but it was really, it's, so it's based sort of on uh, what I wanted to do was to base this book on life stories and how they affect our beliefs and policies and things like that. And so for me, it was a lot about uh, military service and my work in the Pentagon and how diverse and inclusive organizations are much stronger organizations. And so, and we found that out. I mean, it's, it's often hard to get to those points, but when you do, you see the results. And I just use as an example, opening combat positions for women. When I was an attack pilot in the Gulf War, uh, women were not allowed to fly attack aircraft. Uh, so they flew like Blackhawks and the, the Hueys and so forth. Um, now they do. And there's no difference. I mean, a woman can fly a, an attack aircraft just as easily as a man can fly it, uh, maybe even better. Um, so we, you know, you discover these things as you go along, but there's always these entrenched feelings about, oh, we can't, we can, this is sacred ground and white men only. Um, <laughs> and I think we're evolving as a people and as a country, but uh, so that's, that's really what this book is about. And it's about um, not, uh, not just talking about equality, but doing equality. And so, and, and it's, and it really references, since I just finished it in the last few months, it really, it, it does reference the Black Lives Matter movement, um, mm -hmm. which to me is more than a movement. It is, it, it is very much about this, this issue of untamed equality. In the past, we would, we would have a lot of people saying, look, look, you got a little something, you got everybody's attention, just sit down, be quiet, we're going to work on this. And every, you know, the gay community, the women's uh, rights community, Black Lives Matter community, all these folks have heard this over and over and over again. Um, you know, wait your turn. Take what, we're, take what you're getting. Don't. But I think after 
um, you know, event after event after event, it was finally a moment where there, the, the African-American community, the, all the communities of color and our community said, yeah, this is getting ridiculous. Enough is enough. We need to do something. We really need to take some actions. And so that's what this book is about, is that, is that it says, you know, there's a difference between leading and, and in that sense, talking and leading, as in setting the example and actually taking action. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's sort of the message from the book. And, and I know one of the things as I was doing uh, some research on your, your, your great career is that you were involved in the uh, in getting transgender rights for the military uh, personnel. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that process goes? And that's, I mean, I think that um, speaks great to the message you, you've been speaking about today. Yeah, so uh, I, I, I'll tell a quick story and then that, that sort of leads into this. And that is, um, so when I was in the military, I was gay, nobody knew that. Well, yeah, whether they knew it or not, whatever. <laughs> But um, when I came to the Pentagon, I actually had to implement Don't Ask, Don't Tell, mm. which was a hard pill to swallow. I mean, that was, that was a tough thing to do. And, um, and people look at it and they say, that was a bad policy. Yeah, it was a bad policy. However, it was a massive improvement over what was there before, which was basically, we don't if we think you're gay, you're out, period. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no don't ask and don't tell. So it was a little step forward. And what we've learned as we've moved along in the process, like with uh, opening positions for women, um, is that if you bring in the community being affected by the policy, then you're gonna get a better policy. <laughs> uh, that wasn't done with don't ask, don't tell. It was done to some extent in opening combat positions for women. It was done much better on the second round of opening positions for women. And it certainly was done with the tran transgender policy. So we were looking at this and we had heard from multiple military leaders that, you know, we got transgender people in, in our ranks, but, you know, we just, it's not an issue for us at the unit level, works out just fine. And so it was time for a policy. So we pulled in, um, you know, the people that were being affected by this, the transgender community. Uh, we, we brought in a lot of folks in units uh, to give opinions on both sides. And then the policy developed and it developed with the input of the people that were being affected. And that's, to me, is, is the most Im important, you know, element of this. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was an amazing, moment to do that. And then um, during the midst of all that, I received a, a, a Facebook message because uh, one of the things that I feel very strongly about people in public office, they have to connect with the community. So we had a Facebook page, we had a Twitter account and all this stuff. I got a Facebook message from a family in, in Germany saying, look, our, our daughter is uh, not being allowed to use uh, her, her own bathroom, her bathroom of, of you know, her, her gender identity. And uh, they were making her go across uh, a, an open quad to uh, a bathroom that was uh, reserved for faculty. 
And it wasn't the, the whole bathroom situation. It was the embarrassment of what she was going through. And this was a service member's daughter. And it's like, okay, you think that doesn't impact his readiness? It 100% impacts his readiness. So uh, came home, uh, was talking with my husband and he's like, yeah, we got to do something about this. So I go back and I, again, pulled together a, uh, a group you know, we looked into it for a very short period of time because I knew what was right and wrong in this case and uh, implemented policy to, to fix that. And so, you know, the, the kids were allowed to, to do what kids do um, and uh, took the parents out and, and, it, and it got, uh, you know, it, it made the, the service member feel secure again and, be, and not have to worry about his daughter when he was, when he was away. And, uh, and we hear a lot of times in Washington that there's gridlock and obviously this is, you know, big, um, a big rights change um, like that. How much pushback and what's kind of the behind the scenes workings? Obviously, I, it can't, I'm sure it's not as easy as you want to do this. You're in position to do this. You write a rule, push, submit, and it's done. <laughs> right. That's, that's, you're exactly right. There is fighting a lot. It's tooth and nail sometimes. Um, and the good thing is, is that in, people talk about the uh, the machine or the the I forget what uh, the the government machine or whatever it is that people reference the career civil servants the people that you know have been doing government for their job for years uh, they're the continuity they're the ones that that make sure that we have a dose of reality <laughs> because everybody's got a great idea uh, but you hope that somebody's in the room kind of say, okay, this is a good idea, but we can do it this way. And so, so that's the good thing about having career civil servants, the, the government uh, at work. Um, and so, yeah, there's a process that goes in, in into creating these policies and, and there are the checks that are supposed to be done. It doesn't always happen, but hopefully it does. Um, but then again, you know, when we left, uh, it was only a matter of weeks before all these policies were undone. Uh, and, and you hope that that doesn't happen, uh, that, that things are allowed to, to take effect and see if they'll work. And you know, then if they need to be changed, they get changed. But it doesn't always happen that way. And I know that people out, you know, people out in the real world are like, why can't this change? Why can't this just happen? I don't understand why this doesn't happen. Well, it. A lot of times it means that more people out in real America need to pick up the phone and, and call their Congress people and take up the phone and or get on the Facebook and, and chat with people like me or whatever uh, in the Pentagon and say, look, you need to change this. Uh, and then things happen. And and that brings us to, to, to this point. The country has um, some divisiveness, you know, concern about no matter which side, which political party you, you associate with. Um, so as someone that's been kind of an insider on it, at, at times in Washington, D.C., what would you say to the general public, real America, um, as you just said, um, about, uh, you know, people that are thinking, you know, there's way too much of people right now is, yeah. you know, we're about to begin another four years of, a, of, an, of an administration. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that I would... <laughs> The couple of lessons I've learned are um, one, it's it's difficult, but you have to get away from the personal politics. You got to get away from thinking things about people 
and get back to thinking things about the policies. So I don't like the tax plan. I don't like the way we're doing uh, environmental protection or whatever it is, that's fine. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the people that believe one way or the other are, are bad people. So we've got to get away from that element. And the second element is, and this is really to all those people that are just like fed up with it. And they're just like, oh, I just want to watch Oprah and not, not have to <laughs> listen. I always tell people this, democracy is not a spectator sport. You have got to get involved. And sometimes you have to get more involved than you would like to. It's not just voting either. It's, it's you got to make your voice be heard. Um, otherwise, there's a lot of mixed signals that get sent. And, and you could easily take mixed signals from this election. 70 million people uh, supported the administration that's in now. What kind of signal is that sending? It's hard to tell sometimes. Um, you know, so you really have to make your voice heard, uh, be a participant in the process, but don't take things too, you know, don't get too angry over things. <laughs> and hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll pull this one back and, and get it back into play, get the ball back in play here uh, <laughs> in the next few years and people will get back to being participants in the policy side and not so much in the uh, angry attack side. <laughs> Well, we'll uh, we'll bring it back to, to close with where we started, which is uh, which is TCU. The reason everyone here is listening. Um, <laughs> what, you went over your your phenomenal career, the outstanding people you know, and the great policies you've been able to uh, afford change on. What role do you think TCU um, is able to play, and and the and the role you're able to make on the on the greater world? I don't think that I have. I would have been able to do the work that I did in the Pentagon without my time at TCU. I learned so much about uh, politics and history and philosophy, which a lot of people say, well, what does that give you? It actually helps you in how you approach solving problems and how you approach dealing with people. Um, one of the advantages of having worked on the IT side of the house is that I see over and over and over again, the number of people that just went and got IT certifications, haven't had a nice, well-rounded, uh, advanced education. Yeah, they had an education through high school, but not, I'm talking about an advanced education in college um, where they, they couldn't manage people. That, you know, a lot of these people, they can't manage people and they don't know how to communicate with clients. Um, these are things that, you know, programs that we don't think are that, that great, history and philosophy and so forth, are really very powerful. And that's what I credit with T TCU with. I mean, it was, you know, I made great friends and had a wonderful time there, uh, but it was really the opportunity to learn and explore and then put that stuff to practice. Well, that is, that's the message I think we've all taken away from our time here at, uh, at yeah. TCU. And, and Todd, we want to thank you again for joining us today. It's, th this went by so fast and we could spend another six hours going over all your, all the great stories you've had. This has been, this has been wonderful. Thank you again so much. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Frog for Life podcast. 
If you or a friend or family member would like to get in touch with us to share your story, please contact us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at TCU Alumni. We look forward to sharing our next story of how TCU alumni are changing the world.